Welcome to this special episode of the European Space Agency's ESA Explorers podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ennis, co-hosting, as always, with Alison Kohler. In this episode, Ali hosts a conversation with the leaders of ESA and NASA, ESA Director General Jan Werner and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. This episode was recorded in early October of 2020, just weeks before the ISS hit a major milestone of 20 years of continuous habitation. During this episode, Jim and Jan discuss the significance of this milestone, the nature of collaboration between ESA and NASA, the future of human space exploration, and much more. Just a really quick note before we get started. There is a small drop in audio quality later in the episode as we switched over to our backup recording. With that, it's time to hand over to Ali. Thank you very much to both of you for taking some time out of your schedules to have a chat with us on the podcast today. Throughout this series of ESA Explores, we've been tracking the history of humans in space. We've spoken to a lot of astronauts and experts who have been involved at pivotal moments, including some of the earliest missions such as the launch of Space Lab. We won't waste too much time, we'll delve right into the topic of today, and that is human spaceflight history. And at the time of this recording, we're actually approaching another historical moment, and that's 20 years of continuous habitation of the International Space Station. So I just wanted to ask, and perhaps starting with you, Jim, just how significant is this moment? So it really is a, an amazing moment in time. And, and I know, you know, Jan and I talk uh, a lot about what the future looks like and how do we go to the moon sustainably. You know, Jan Werner was leading on the, the moon village. And now, of course, the United States has joined the effort with you know, a moon program we call Artemis. Look, here's the thing. The question that we all have to ask ourselves is, how do you go to space sustainably? As much as we love the Apollo program in history, it ended. As much as we love the space shuttle program, it ended. So what we need to do is we need to say, how do we create a program that's going to be around for the next 50 years or more? And the International Space Station is really a shining example of how we can create a sustainable program, and we do it with international partnerships. And here we are 20 years, celebrating 20 years of keeping life off the Earth on the International Space Station. I think it's an amazing achievement. Yeah, absolutely. I can only agree. And Jan, we've seen the involvement of Europe and Europe's role in the space station evolve throughout those 20 years. I mean, just in the past two missions, we've had two ESA astronauts in command of the space station. Could you tell us a little bit about how it is for ESA, what this 20 years means for you? For me, these 20 years are more than just a point in history. For me, it's experience. For me, it's a special personal experience of what was happening the last 20 years. And if you allow me, there are two main aspects which I followed and which were very significant for me. One was the situation uh, when um, the European Columbus module was docked to the station. That was in 2008. This was for me a very special moment. I was in, in the US at uh, Cape Canaveral following first the launch and then, of course, following also the procedure to dock the Columbus module. And the other thing was in 2014, which was for me even more impressive. And I'm still, when I give a talk about space, I always use that example. In 2014, there was a Crimea conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And everybody on Earth was talking about the sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia, etc., etc. 
And I got an invitation to go to a launch to um, Baikonur to send a European astronaut into space, to the International Space Station. And I was really afraid. I said, can that happen in this situation when we have all these political crisis on Earth. And I came to Baikonur. I saw this, uh, two astronauts and one cosmonaut. So it was Reed Weisman from NASA. It was Maxim Surayev from the Russians and was a European astronaut with a German passport, uh, Alexander Gerst. And they were sitting together as if there is nothing, no, no sanctions, nothing. And they flew to the station and without any visa problem, they can move, could move between the Russian and the American sector and this was for me the feeling, yes, there is still some hope for the future that we can work together. So the ISS is for me really a, a symbol of what can be done by humanity. Absolutely. Yeah, it seems that the International Space Station has is, is really brought these nations together, like you say. And so how has this international partnership shaped where we are so, uh, of course, the International Space Station was a very important step also in the partnership between NASA and, and the European Space Agency. And it has shaped us because uh, by that, if you're working together in such an environment, in a hazardous environment in outside our atmosphere, then you need trust between the partners. Without trust, you are lost. And so the cooperation at the International Space Station and in the International Space Station and to the International Space Station, that really developed trust between NASA and ESA, but also between people like, for instance, Jim and myself. So I can say that we are more than just the heads of two space agencies. We are friends by that. And this is, this is not a, a hollow sentence. This is really something which I feel by my heart. And this gives me also some uh, trust for the future. That kind of leads me into my next question. So space is very much in the spotlight at the moment. Um, you know, we've, we've seen recently the successful crew demo of SpaceX Crew Dragon, and new countries are setting up their own agencies and missions, and we have these commercial players as well. So I wanted to ask you, Jim, are we in the midst of a new space race, or is this more of a space collaboration? Well, I'll tell you, from our, our perspective at NASA, we, we certainly do see this as a massive collaboration. So we think about the International Space Station, you know, Jan, I think, articulated it very clearly. We've learned how to work together. We've learned how to trust each other. Um, and now we've got 15 nations that are operating the International Space Station. We've had astronauts from 19 nations. We've had experiments on the International Space Station from 103 different nations. Um, all of this, you know, speaks to the tool of diplomacy that is the International Space Station. But I also think here's what's important. When we think about the future, whether it's future efforts in low Earth orbit or going to the moon or onto Mars, there's room for many, many more. And so while today the ISS is operated by 15 countries, we see the Artemis program expanding that. And, you know, Jan and I had a meeting at the International Astronautical Congress last year. And we had at that meeting, we had 26 countries show up saying they wanted to be part of the next generation big thing, which, which is Artemis. And some of those countries don't even have space agencies yet. Others of those countries stood up space agencies within the last year. We're seeing this, this growing desire for countries to collaborate on exploration. And I think it really speaks to who we are as humanity. We all want to know more. We all want to make discoveries. Um, and I think science and, and exploration are ways that we can collaborate in very meaningful ways 
the moon is next, and then Mars comes after that. So I totally agree with Jim. Of course, it's cooperation, and cooperation is an enabler, as Jim was saying. Without this cooperation, uh, we could not do what we are doing. ESA is based on cooperation internally, but also externally. Without NASA, <laughs> we would be nothing in, in human spaceflight. I have to say that. So cooperation is an enabler for many countries, as Jim was saying. At the same time, you, you raised the question, is there still a race in space? Yes, there is some competition in space, and this is good. Who would run 100 meters below 10 seconds? Nobody. There is a competition. I would take a car anyhow. But anyhow, so I think it's very important that we, we see that it's not a contradiction to have some competition, which is a driver, and to have cooperation, which is an enabler. And I think we are doing this really in space. We do this perfectly. It's different to 50 years ago. Nobody of you can remember, only me, as uh, sometimes James is asking my, me whether I was uh, only also in uh, World War II active. No, no, I was not. Uh, <laughs> I was born afterwards. But you see, I followed all this race in space in the 50s and 60s of last century. But we are in a totally different scheme right now. So we see competition and cooperation at the same time. And I, I think that's evidence. NASA's budget has been going up significantly over the last few years. And what we're seeing is the European Space Agency is doing the same thing. They're see, we're seeing their budgets go up. And of course, the, the Japanese Space Agency, we're seeing the largest budget request they've ever had in their history. They're asking for an additional 50% on top of last year's budget. So I think to the extent that there is competition among the partners, I think it's healthy because we all have a desire to explore and the public that we work for has a desire to explore. And I do want to talk about that desire to explore, but I also want to take it back to what you mentioned about the moon and Mars and Artemis. So we're going to the moon, we're going to Mars. What's the plan? Yeah, so in 2021, we're going to launch uh, the, the most powerful rocket ever built called the SLS with an Orion crew capsule and a European service module. So even on that first mission next year in 2021, that first mission is international. So the European Space Agency and NASA are gonna launch this powerful rocket around the moon, or I should not the rocket, the crew capsule will go around the moon and then come home safely. It will be an uncrewed mission. By 2023, we wanna have crew on board. And by 2024, we wanna land astronauts on the surface of the moon. I'll tell you one of the areas where Europe is going to be so important to us is what we call the gateway. When we think about going to the moon sustainably, we want to stay at the moon. We're going to need to be able to reuse human landing systems that can go back and forth to the surface of the moon. The gateway is, is a little space station that has room to grow, but it will be in orbit around the moon for up to 15 years, probably longer. And that, and that gateway is going to be what enables our human landing systems to be reusable. So the European Space Agency has been a great partner on that, and we expect that to continue in the future. But even on the first day, without the European Space Agency, there wouldn't be a moon mission. That, that's the kind of partnership that we have. And when uh, Jim is talking about going sustainably to the moon, that's a very important sentence because this time, uh, when we go together to the moon, of course, leadership of NASA. Uh, we would like to stay there doing research on the surface of the moon, but not, and this is important, not building a colony for people to go to the moon and stay there until they are dying. That is not our intention because some people say, ah, let's go to moon or Mars and stay there forever. 
And some are using this as an excuse not to take care of our Earth. This is not the opinion what we are trying to do together. Sustainably going to the moon and later on to Mars means to go there not just for a couple of hours, but to do something. And as Jim was saying, going for and back from the uh, gateway. So this is really a vision which comes very close uh, to be reality. So I'm really happy that we can be part of that story. It is certainly an exciting time. And that touches on another question that I had is, and I'm sure it's a question that you get all the time, is why to the moon? Have we not been to the moon? I'll let you start that one, Jan. This okay. has been on the agenda for a long time. Yes, thank you, Jim. So when I started to discuss about the moon, people were telling me, Jan, you are stupid. You are a civil engineer. You have no idea. The moon is just a dead rock. There is nothing of interest in the moon. We were there. Everything is finished. But then we got the results also from, uh, from American missions, from NASA missions, that there is water on the moon. So suddenly it was not a dead stone only, that there is water. So we can, if we go to the moon, we can get hydrogen and oxygen out of the, of the water. We can use the water also for astronauts. So suddenly, just by the exploration findings of water, the situation changed dramatically. And of course, a trip to moon is different to a trip to Mars, because if we want to go to Mars, we should be very well prepared. So the moon is something like a stepping stone. And I believe that at a certain point in time, when we are already going towards Mars, maybe some also some commercial uh, will go to the moon also, maybe even with uh, tourism. So I believe the moon will be the next destination after the lowest orbit, where people will also normal people can uh, go and not only uh, publicly funded astronauts. That's my vision in that direction. And I, I would also add that a couple of other things, water ice is amazing. And as Jan said, it is a game changer in how we do exploration. But now what we're finding is that water is prevalent throughout the entire solar system. So how we create the architectures for the moon actually inform how we're going to go to Mars and other places throughout the solar system. The regolith of the moon, the soil of the moon, has been being it has been being impacted by subatomic charged particles from the sun for billions of years. So and and the moon doesn't have you know the earth has an active geology an active hydrosphere an active atmosphere. The moon doesn't have any of that, which means anything that impacted the moon billions of years ago is today right where where it was billions of years ago unless something else impacted it like an asteroid maybe. So I think the moon is a repository of data and information of the early solar system. It will help us understand the early sun. So from a pure solar system science perspective, there is so, so, so much more to learn. And from the far side of the moon, where it's very quiet, from an electromagnetic spectrum perspective, we're going to be able to see way out into deep space in, in a way that we couldn't see otherwise. So we're looking at doing a mission that we call DAPR that's going to help us see not just the first light in the universe after the Big Bang, but in fact, what we call the dark ages after the Big Bang and first light occurred. And we're going to be able to see that from the far side of the moon in a way that there's nowhere else in the inner solar system where we're going to get that kind of astrophysics. So I think from a pure science perspective, the moon is amazing. And like Jan said, we need to go there first. It's a three-day journey home. Apollo 13 taught us that something bad can happen on the way to the moon and you can still make it home safely, it's the proving ground. When we go to Mars, we have to be willing to stay for a very, very long time 
because the Earth and Mars are on the same side of the sun once every 26 months. We have to build the capability to go into deep space at the moon, and then we need to exercise that when we go to Mars. It is fascinating. So the moon is a proving ground, and it's also a historian, I guess, for Earth. Um, So it can tell us a lot about how we came to be and how this planet came to be. So it is exciting, I can see, for us to be heading in that direction. What happens to the International Space Station when we go forward to the moon? So so the International Space Station has been an amazing capability for now 20 years of of permanent human habitation, and it's going to continue to go on. But I think what we all need to be thinking of is what comes next, because we have to come to the realization that at some point in time, it's not going to be survivable anymore. And so when we think about what comes next, we, we need to start preparing today for that eventuality. And you know, we think about how we're getting to the space station now, what we call commercial crew, where NASA buys a service, we don't own and operate the vehicles. We think a future is out there where NASA can buy a service for commercial human habitation in low Earth orbit. And, and when we buy that service, you know, it can be a partnership with the European Space Agency. And maybe the European Space Agency with industry in Europe would be interested in building you know, independent habitation as well. NASA could be a customer of commercial space stations from Europe. Europe could be a customer of commercial space stations from the United States. But the idea is we really think that when you create competition in the marketplace, what happens is there's innovation that happens. So innovation happens, costs Uh, There's cost drivers that drive down costs, and all of these things increase access, but also we want competition on safety. So we think that the the future of low Earth orbit is commercial. And right now, I know we're using the International Space Station to create technologies using the valuable resource that is microgravity. And you can do things in the microgravity of space that you can't do on Earth, compounding of pharmaceuticals, creating of immunizations, um, advanced materials creating human tissue on the International Space Station using your own adult stem cells so we can create your own tissue and eventually your own organs in the microgravity of space that you could not do in the gravity well of Earth. So we're looking at how do we, how do we prove the capability and the technology so that in the future, private companies will capitalize private habitation and then NASA and others can be customers. So I add again what uh, Jim is saying. We need also in, in lower orbit the possibility of having frequent access for research, for research under microgravity conditions. Uh, Jim mentioned a few, uh, for instance, also the cancer research. If you do cancer research on Earth in a lab, then the cancer is just developing in two dimensions. If you do it in, in space, it is like in our body in three dimensions and even faster than in two dimensions. So you can test also then uh, medicine much better. And, and finally, the human body itself is also a lab, a testing lab in a lowest orbit where we can find out more about our immune system, about blood pressure, about salt regulation. So it is important that, that we have a possibility also in future to have access to lowest orbit. I totally agree. It can be commercial. That's what I hope also. And at the same, t- same time, go together in an international partnership to uh, destinations outside, moon, Mars, and maybe beyond. There you go. So another question I have for you is these days, many people and especially young people around the world are feeling an urge to take action and get involved and help shape the future of the world around them. 
how can they get involved with space and exploration and why is it important to, do you think? We'll start with you, Jan. Number one, what we need is young people being motivated to shape the future. The old ones like me, they really should look to the young ones and say, we need young people like Jim. We should look to young people shaping the world of the future. And this is not only in space. So if we, by space, by fascination of space, by inspiration of space, can motivate young people to have a positive understanding of the future and say, yes, we would also like to shape the future in a positive way, then the power of space is well beyond space. You see, now you could say, ah, this is theoretical blah, blah of a German philosopher. No, I'm a civil engineer. And I, I never thought that I can enter space, but I was really motivated to do something. So I selected for me personally, I will become a civil engineer and build bridges and new bridges, innovative bridges or skyscrapers or tunnels. And then by accident, I became also a space guy. But for me, the, the, the issue was, the point was to be motivated. And therefore, if they want to be motivated, that's number one. If they want to enter into space, there are many possibilities, not only in the public sector, but especially if we are supporting on the American and the German and the European side, the commercialization, there are also a nice job in industry. Uh, yeah, Jan, I, th I think you're right. I would add that um, I do believe, Jan, that you can be both a civil engineer and a philosopher. And I think you represent both very well. And I, I regard your philosophy very highly, um, at least as it, relates, as it relates to space. I don't know what the rest of your philosophy is, but um, I, I think when you think about that next generation that Jan is talking about, we need to do these big, inspiring things that make them want to step out and do that. And that's what the Artemis program is all about. That's what the gateway is all about. It's, it's what, you know, the big rocket, the SLS rocket and the Orion crew capsule and, and the International Space Station has been all about that now for 20 years. But we have to be able to do these big things. You know, I, I can guarantee you just knowing Jan, he knows exactly where he was when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. I don't, I don't know where, I mean, I wasn't born yet. So I, I was, I don't have that memory. I'm the first NASA administrator in history that doesn't have that memory. And I think that is a failure of leadership from the United States of America. And now we're, we're getting back. We're doing it again. We're saying we're going to do big things and we're going to inspire that next generation. And, and that's what the Artemis program is all about. I think young people need to say, as much as we love the history of Apollo and we love the Apollo his the Apollo program, they need to say, this is our generation. This is the Artemis generation. We're not just sending the next man to the moon. We're sending the first woman to the moon. And we're not just going with the United States of America alone. We're going with commercial and international partners. And this is gonna be the broadest coalition in history. And we're going with the purpose to get to Mars. And I think the young generation can really embrace that and declare themselves to be the Artemis generation. We love Apollo, but this generation is new. This is the Artemis generation. We're gonna take a hold of it and we're gonna demand that we go to the moon sustainably and onto Mars. You see, I know exactly where I was on uh, that very 20th July, 1969. I was alone at home in, in front of a TV set and was waiting uh, very uh, curiously, first step of Neil Armstrong and then also of uh, Buzz Aldrin. Yes, and Jim is the first administrator 
who does not have this experience. And I hope, sincerely hope, I'm the last ESA Director General who has this experience. So that means I'm looking that they select, now my, uh, my successor is uh, searched. I hope they really look for younger people because that's very important also for, to give a push for the future. So we, uh, we have a lot of historical milestone moments to look forward to, and it's about inspiring the next generation. And like you said, Jan, not escaping Earth, but going further from Earth so that we can make life better here. Isn't that right? So at ESA, um, I know we are coming up where we may be looking for astronauts in the near future. Do you have any words for aspiring explorers, Jan? So I think what is important is curiosity. Curiosity, I, I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, a competition is a driver, but for a, a single human, also curiosity is a very strong uh, driver. And because young people have automatically this curiosity, we have to support that. They should be curious day by day. We have to give the young people be curious. And if they are curious enough, and if they really believe that space is something for them, and then should uh, think about whether they would like to become an astronaut, then there is the opportunity, but we cannot have all people as astronauts. So if there's somebody really trying to become an astronaut, that's very excellent. So my daughter tried that. She failed. But now she is doing also experiments in the International Space Station, etc., etc. So therefore, there is a life beyond becoming directly an astronaut. But of course, we need also curious young people to become an astronaut. And that's a really good point um, that, you know, isn't just astronauts because astronauts are always a big draw card and human spaceflight is a big draw card, but there's so much more that space agencies do. So I'm kind of coming to the end of my question list at the moment. I have, I know that we have two ESA astronauts who are training at the moment. They have been at NASA and they're, they're training for missions. Um, the first one being Thomas, who, Thomas Pesquet, who's going to be flying SpaceX. When those launches happen, who do you think gets the most sleep the night before? Can you, is that, um, you know, quite a exciting or quite a nervous moment for you as heads of space agencies when those astronauts launch? I can tell you, but Jim has a, maybe uh, he can talk also in a different way. So we, you see, whenever we have a European astronaut to be launched, I try to be there at the, on the launch pad. I try to be there really at the launch pad, meaning not in a shelter hundreds kilometers away or something like that. But I try to be there. We have only a few, therefore it's, it's possible for me. But because of the age difference between the astronauts and myself, I always feel that I'm the father of these young astronauts, even so they might be already 45 or something like that. They could be my kids. And therefore, yes, I'm always afraid a little bit. Of course, I trust the technology, but I have feelings like a father and I really wish that they come back healthy. This is my feeling anytime. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. I always tell them, if you don't like to fly, give me uh, your suit. I will do it immediately. I'm ready. Uh, so far, no, none of them uh, accepted my offer. I would say, um, given the age of American astronauts, maybe sometimes they feel like they're my father. But um, <laughs> I, I say that in jest. I love all of our astronauts, but we've got a broad range um, in ages going from you know their 20s all the way up into their 50s. And they do, and in fact, even up to age 60, I believe. So, you know, when we launched Crew Dragon at the top of a Falcon 9 rocket, 
that was a, that was a stressful time. I know that you know everybody does all the work to retire all the risk. Uh, when you're talking about human spaceflight, there's always going to be risk. And yeah, it was it was difficult to sleep not just that night, but even you know weeks before as as we were leading up to that. But I'll tell you, the team uh, at NASA, the engineers, the uh, the technicians, they, they they do amazing work. The SpaceX team, some of the brightest minds in the nation, did amazing work as well. Uh, we're grateful that Demo 2 went very well. We've got a mission coming up at the end of this month in October. We're getting ready for that. And we're going to have four astronauts on board this time, including one from the Japanese Space Agency. The feeling never goes away. You always feel responsible and you just... Um, you have to realize that, that our astronauts know. They know the in and out of the vehicle and the rocket better than anybody else, and they feel comfortable going. So um, when you're in that position, you you move forward. Fantastic. Thank you both. It's been really good speaking to both of you today, and I can tell you I'm even more excited about where we're going next. <laughs> Is there any closing? Do you have any closing remarks? Otherwise, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Stay healthy yeah. is my only mistake. <laughs> my comment at these times. And stay curious. I, I agree with that. And encourage everybody to uh, to get engaged in the Artemis program for a sustainable return to the moon. And look for November of 2021, launching a big rocket with a crew capsule at the top with the European service module that's going to enable us to fly around the moon for the first time since 1972. Perfect. Can't wait. Forward to the moon. Thank you both. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between the leaders of ESA and NASA. We look forward to bringing you more conversations like this in the future. As always, you can find us on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight using the hashtag ESA Explorers to let us know what you think. While you're there, you can, of course, also follow at Jim Bridenstine and at Jan Werner for all the latest from NASA and ESA. Wherever you listen to us, consider rating and subscribing so we can reach even more space fans. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.